here's the deal. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, because nothing is more important than hearing from God through His Word and by His Spirit. Turn to Luke one twenty six through 56. one twenty six through 56. As you know, we ended 2022 looking at a series on thankfulness because sometimes we, we just go right from world outreach to Christmas and periodically... Uh, We just need to remember how to be thankful, and I think it flowed great from our study of the doxological Hillel. I don't know you, but I just ended 2022 growing in my understanding and awareness of thankfulness. But I wanted to end the year with at least one study for Christmas. And as I prayed about what to do, I realized that uh, back in 2009, I did a series on the songs of Christmas. And if you know that there are four songs uh, of Christmas that are found in the the birth narratives. And a lot of times, as is the case down here, I only had three Sundays to do Advent. And uh, I never did Mary's song. So I thought, oh, this will be great. And man, I just got into that study. And I was pumped and excited. And Mary's song in Luke 1, which we're about to read is a song of thanksgiving. So it was great, except for only one thing. I got that viral crud and wasn't here. And so I'm like, man, that, that, and I had pushed so hard, sick as I was, to finish that lesson. And I'm like, okay, we're just going to, we're going to do this. There's enough material here for a short series. And so we're going to look at Mary and how she can teach us to magnify the Lord. And so I just pray that God's word and God's spirit in these weeks to come would truly do a work in our hearts to where we learn how to make much of Jesus like Mary did. Let's look at the overview of the passage. You're there, 126 through uh, 56. But here's an overview of the passage. The it breaks down into three sections, verses 26 through 38. So if you look at it there, 26 through 38 is called the Annunciation, which is a, a churchy religious way of saying the announcement. It is Gabriel's announcement, the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary. Then you have verses 39 through 45, which is called the visitation. And it's called the visitation because Mary... Upon hearing the news from the angel Gabriel that her relative Elizabeth has conceived in her old age when she was barren, runs to the Judean hillside and visits Elizabeth. The third section is verses 46 through 56, which takes place having visited Elizabeth, and it takes place in Elizabeth and Zacharias' house, and it's called the magnification. And the reason it's called the magnification, or at least how I label that section magnification, is because it records Mary's song. And it is called in Latin and in church history the Magnificat. The Magnificat. And we'll talk about why that is in a moment. But let's read it. There's your sections. Here's where we're going to be in the weeks to come. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, and this would be in reference to what came before the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, or (laughs) giving birth to John the Baptist, the sixth month of him being conceived, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her. So this is not a vision of of sorts. It's like the angel is physically present. And coming in, he said to her, greetings. Favored one, 
The Lord is with you. Okay, so an angel has entered your home and said these words. Not surprisingly, but she was very perplexed this, by the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Notice, she's not shocked that an angel is in her presence. She's shocked the message of the angel, which shows that Mary understood the supernatural power of God, understood the Old Testament, and understood the possibility of this. But you got to understand, this comes after 400 years of God's silence to the people of Israel. So she's, she's perplexed, and we see that she's even afraid. Verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Repeat it twice. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The Davidic covenant is being fulfilled, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Jacob's uh, original birth name. This is going to be a literal, physical kingdom, although it will begin as a spiritual one. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? I mean, I, I mean conception here, what, what, I don't know. How's this going to happen? And he said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Notice in this passage, it's not Mary who's called holy. It's Christ who is the holy child and shall be called the Son of God. Implication being physical man and divine God in one person. And behold, here's a sign. Even your relative, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. So you got two miraculous conceptions, one by supernatural means, the other by natural means. So Zacharias and Elizabeth uh, had intimacy and gave conceived, even though she was in her uh, barrenness of her old age, and yet this virgin Mary is going to conceive in her birth by supernatural means. And why is all this possible? Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. The sign of Elizabeth is a, a smaller miracle to remind Mary that the greater miracle is possible because with God, nothing is impossible. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now that's the annunciation, the announcement. Here's the visitation, verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah. We don't know what city it is. Some speculate there's a village about five miles uh, uh, west of Jerusalem. 80 to 100 miles she traveled, alone, uh, probably with other travelers, but basically alone. Now, at this time, she rose, she went in a hurry, and she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice. Remember how we studied praise and thanksgiving is to be shouted to the Lord? She shouts. And here's what she says. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Notice she says, my Lord. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Now, just real quick, I want you to keep your hand there and turn back to Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Luke chapter 1, 15, because Luke assumes we've already read chapter 1, all of chapter 1. Look at verse 15. Here's the prophecy of Gabriel 
to Zacharias for he, concerning John the Baptist. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So what's taking place here is a fulfillment of that prediction to Zacharias. And the baby is leaping not because Mary had eaten something spicy the night before, but because the Holy Spirit is filling Elizabeth and the baby a six-month embryo. Think about that for a minute. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greetings reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb, not due to spicy food, but for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. That's the visitation. Here comes the magnification. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. Or you could translate, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's why in Latin they call it the Magnificat. She magnifies the Lord, not herself, notice. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he had regard for my humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Elizabeth, you're right. I am blessed among women and among all generations. Why? Verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. Notice nothing is said in this text about Mary being holy. It's all about God's holiness. All Mary is getting is grace upon grace and blessing upon blessing. And his mercy upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. And he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. And sent away the rich empty handed. He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his descendants forever and Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home so notice Elizabeth is six months pregnant Mary stays about three months basically right up during the hardest part of this very old lady's pregnancy which is the hardest months so I'm told, and then leaves right at the moment when Mary herself would be beginning to show. So we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Here's what I want you to see. That first portion that I read, the Annunciation, very familiar because it's preached many a time at Christmas. The last part, the Magnificat, the song, the magnification, somewhat familiar because it too is often taught at Christmas. But that middle section, 39 through 45, is less familiar to us because it's sandwiched between the other two. Well, in this series, we're going to look at all of this. Mary's song is known as the Magnificat in Latin from the first words of the song, my soul exalts or magnifies the Lord. But here's the deal. We're going to do in this series and realize Mary wasn't a one-hit wonder. This song wasn't the only time she magnified the Lord. This song poured forth from her life. Mary's life song was to magnify the Lord, not herself. That's the theme of this series. And by the way, that's your purpose for 2023. That's your purpose for every day of your life ever since you've been born again, is to make much of Him and not of us. Mary's song poured forth from Mary's life. Her life song was to magnify the Lord. I can't help but think of that uh, casting crown. Let my life song sing. I had that uh, sung at my ordination. It's a special song to me and just been playing that. In, in that. That's what Mary wanted. Let my life song sing. Let it sing to you. And I hope your song 
will be strengthened through this series. So let's look at a little background on Mary. I got excited, and here we go. Mary was one of the most common names for women at the time of Christ. Did you know that? One of the most common names. Uh, it, 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 in Greek, it's Maria or Mariam, and it comes from the Hebrew Miriam. Remember Miriam? And literally, approximately 25% at the time of Jesus, 25% of girls were named Mary. So every fourth woman you would run into, Jerry, you could basically say, Mary? And the answer would be yes, right? 25%. Now, here's why. Because in those days, you didn't have baby name books. And there was about, and, and I forgot the number, and I, I didn't have time to look it up this week. But there's like a half a dozen to a dozen names. So that's why in the Bible, you're like, man, so many of these people have the same name. Why is that? Because there just wasn't that many. They just didn't. That's how they did it, right? And that's certainly the case for Mary. And the reason Mary was so popular, well, first of all, among the Jewish people, because of Moses' sister, who was a prophetess. But also at the time of Christ, Herod the Great, the king of Judea, at the time when Christ was born, had ten wives. And wife number two and wife number three was also named Miriam. So, uh, hey, Hebrew prophetess, uh, Hebrew princesses, let's name our daughter Mary. Therefore, in the New Testament, there are possibly seven different Marys in the New Testament. Scholars say anywhere from six to nine. Now, the reason... We don't know exactly how many is because so many were named Mary. And so it's hard to figure out which Mary you're talking about, right? And here's the deal. If you think about the Bible, you realize because so many people had the same name, you would have to differentiate them by who their father was or who they were married to or where they were from or what their occupation was, or by their age. So you got James the lesser and James the older. You know, lesser not because he was insignificant, but he was, he was uh, likely younger in years. So you have all these reasons. So here's, here's uh, some scholars think there's likely just six, but here, here's seven, and, and we'll go with these. And I, I'm not going to teach through these. You have all these verses, but here they are. Number one, Mary. Well, how do we know her? Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary from Nazareth, and then Mary Magdalene. And more than likely, Magdalene's not her last name. It's the place that she was from, Magdala. Mary, you know Mary. Which Mary? The Mary from Magdala. And then number three, Mary. Which Mary? Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. What Mary, number four? Oh, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, some people think... Number four is the same as number three. In fact, there's one passage in Matthew where Matthew writes, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And it's like, okay, you're not helping me here, Matthew. You're not helping me. So this is why we don't know. Six, seven. Then you have Mary. What Mary? The sister of Martha and Lazarus, the Mary from Bethany. And then number six, you have Mary the mother of John Mark, who hosted, who wrote the gospel of Mark, and who hosted the early church on the day of Pentecost. And then finally, you have one mention of Mary, the hard worker for the church at Rome. Paul says, greet Mary, who has worked very hard, labored to the point of exhaustion, implication in the gospel ministry on behalf of you at the church at Rome. So there you go. You got all these marriages. It's just fascinating how you had to identify Chris, what Chris? Chris from Kansas City. You know, Chris the pastor. That's how you would identify people. Now, third thing I want you to see is by far the most mentioned Mary in the Bible is the young mother, probably 13, 14 years old. Uh, very common, very typical to be married that long. Realize people weren't, didn't live as long as they did then. 
and you would quickly want to be married for that is how you were taken care of and provided in those days. But she's the one that is mentioned most, the young mother of Jesus. In fact, out of all these Marys, she's mentioned 19 times. And the next closest is Mary Magdalene, who is uh, mentioned 14 times. In fact, over half of the 19 times Mary is mentioned, it's found right here in Luke-Acts. And Luke very likely interviewed Mary as an eyewitness when, she, when he wrote his gospel. So if you look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he said, I have researched this very diligently, and I have interviewed eyewitnesses, and therefore that's why Luke has the most material on Mary, because he actually interviewed her. And you notice in Luke, he'll write things like, And Mary pondered this and treasured this in her heart. Mary was excited and confused and afraid. How did he know? It was because Mary was reporting this to him. Now, I like what Chuck Swindoll says about this whole passage, 26 through 56. He says this, This one passage teaches us everything we need to know about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I would put forth to you, What we need to know is that Mary's life song was to magnify the Lord and not herself. But sadly, down through church history, that hasn't always been the case. So notice in your notes, two extremes in church history. We either make too much of Mary or in church history we have made too little of Mary. And that has been true from the early years I mean, you can go back 300 A.D., 400 A.D. It didn't take long before the church began to make too much of Mary. And that grew and grew until among Roman Catholics, High Anglicans, and the Orthodox Church, like the Roman Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. They make too much of Mary. And then in came the Reformation back to the Bible. And they're like, I don't see all this stuff in the Bible. And then there's an overreaction where we're going to see that others make too little of Mary. So let's take a look at this. Extreme number one. Or, but, but let me say this. Here, here's the tension. We either magnify her or we minimize her. Okay. We either deify her or we diminish her. That's the tension that we have. Okay. And here's the extreme number one. Roman Catholic Church, High Anglicans, and the Orthodox Church make too much of Mary. Now, let's look at this and see how they do it. And here's what I'm going to tell you is uh, one of the times uh, on our campaigns and and teaching in Romania, which is dominated by the uh, Romanian Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church there in Mediash, where I would teach, I went with uh, one of my Romanian friends, and we went into the service, and one of their priests were teaching. And, of course, I had no clue what they were saying, so I asked my, my friend to translate, and he said, Oh, she, the, the priest is talking about how Mary, uh, the children that are associated with her, were not hers because she was a perpetual virgin. And it was just interesting that on any day you could walk into that Orthodox church and here they were teaching this extreme about Mary. So let's look at four false doctrines. Four false doctrines about Mary and we're going to predominantly look at it from the angle of the Roman Catholic Church. The first one, and let me say this, uh, some of you here have friends and relatives who are Roman Catholic. You're praying for their salvation. I have joined you in praying for that. We have others here like Carmen who came out of this. This is a very real. It is very personal and it's very emotional. And so, you know, if you're thinking here, well, why are we learning this? Well, because this is stuff that people are still deceived by and in bondage to. And so we want God to break our hearts for anyone we might know who are in bondage to these, not so that we can blast them and correct them and rebuke them. No, so that we can magnify Jesus and point them to one greater. Does that, does that resonate? Yeah. 
So let's look at it. So the first false doctrine is the Immaculate Conception. And I have dates here. These are dates that show when the Roman Catholic Church either made this official doctrine or a pope actually quoted or or taught this doctrine. Okay, so some of this is official. Some of it is just merely mentioned. But when the pope approves it. So I'm just giving you times when it was officially... um, validated or became doctrine. The Immaculate Conception, 1854. Mary was without sin, a sin nature, or original sin. Notice, at the instant of being conceived. And this is how they can get around. You can say, well, she had to be a sinner. She was human. Well, yeah, she was for an instant. Wouldn't that be great, Jim? Are you a sinner? Yeah. In an instant, though, the moment... When egg and sperm came together, I was instantaneously sinless. And that's what they teach. So they get around. It's very, it's all false, false doctrine. It's very deceptive, very twisted. Let me read directly from Pope uh, Pius IX. In Catholic doctrine, the belief that, and here's what he says, the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instant of her conception, by a singular grace, no one else gets this grace, and privilege granted by Almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. So you can say, well, well, yeah, where's Jesus? Oh, he, it was based on what Jesus was to do. But here's someone who at the very moment... So notice, here's what another Roman Catholic apologist says. He asserts that Mary was indeed saved from sin, but in a different and more glorious way than the rest of us are. The merits of Christ were applied to her in an anticipatory way prior to her birth, he says, so that she was born without sin. By citing the examples of babies who are aborted or people born with mental deficiencies, this Roman Catholic apologist thinks to show that Paul's universal statements of sinfulness allows for exceptions. Here's the idea. You say, wait a minute, Paul says in Romans 3 and Romans 5 that uh, all have sinned and fall short. That includes Mary. And they would say, yes, you're right. But there are exceptions. And looking towards babies in their death or looking towards the mentally... Well, Mary was neither of those, okay? So she's not an exception. And at the moment she was conceived, on the basis of Christ's righteousness, God, in a singular, unique way, granted her sinlessness from even original sin. And so Mary was sinless like Jesus. Now, we're not studying all of these four, but let me just give you, just from this passage alone, seven reasons that show Mary was a sinner saved by grace. So just from this passage alone. First of all, Mary needed a personal Savior. You say, how do you know that, Chris? Well, look at verse verse 47. In her song, magnifying the Lord, she says, My spirit has rejoiced in God who? My Savior. My Savior. Now, a Roman Catholic is going to say, Well, yeah, saved her instantaneously the moment she was conceived. But that's not the sense of this. That's not the context of this. She's saying, I need a Savior just like everyone else. Number two, Mary needed to receive grace. We're going to see more on this in a moment. But if you look at verses 28 and 30, God initiates the giving of grace to Mary. Mary doesn't deserve it. God initiates it. And the first thing the angel says, greetings, favored one. Favored is the word for grace. Greetings, one who has received grace. And then he says again in verse uh, um, 30, do not be afraid for you have found favor, grace with God. She receives it. Plus, she's called blessed. And just a couple of weeks ago when we studied the idea of blessing, we were reminded that blessing is God's 
grace given to do God's will in God's way. And so she's receiving grace. She's not full of grace. She's in need of grace. Number three, Mary needed to believe. This is huge. Look at verse 45. When Elizabeth says, you're blessed, she says in verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what the Lord has spoken. Now, granted, this isn't talking about Mary's uh, believing in Christ for salvation, but the point is she is a believer. And what's emphasized is her putting faith in what God has said, not in her having no need to be a believer because she was sinless. This is emphasized by number four, Mary needed mercy. Mary needed mercy. Not to mercy, she just needed mercy, okay? And so this is in in, uh, verse uh, 50. She says, for the mighty one, or verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, not holy am I, and his mercy is upon generation after generation. I needed mercy just like every other sinner needs mercy. I am no different from the generations. He helped me because I needed it. It's mercy. Number Five, Mary needed to fear God just like the rest of us. She goes on in verse 50 and says, toward those who fear him. God, you've done this to me, uh, done, given me this great grace in order to be the mother of Jesus. And you did it for me just like you have done for all those who fear you. I fear you. I am not equal to you. Number six, Mary needed to submit to God. Here's what's amazing. Mary doesn't say, here I am, queen of heaven, eager to be equal to you and dispense grace to all those sinners, unlike you and me, my son. No, what does she say? Notice she says in verse 38, behold, the bond slave. You couldn't get any lower than that. She's not exalting herself. She says, I'm just a humble servant. I sit and you tell me what to do. You give me grace, and I place my faith and obedience towards you. She not only said it once, she said it in verse 48 as well, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. So even after she knows, even after she knows and place, knows that she's going to be the mother of Jesus, she doesn't exalt herself as, Well, here I am, the mother of Jesus. You can now designate me that. No, she says, after hearing these great things, she goes, oh, man, I'm just a bond slave. Isn't that? I mean, think about that. Think how quickly you and I puff ourselves up. You know, God does something for us, and we think, well, we're pretty special now. Oh, he did this for me. I'm better than other Christians. You see none of that here. None of that in Mary. And then number seven, Mary needed help from the mighty one. Holy is his name. She is a sinner like all of us. So so we'll study these in depth. But I just want to give you, as I looked at this passage, as I studied this, this false doctrine, I'm like, well, there's seven things right here in this passage that tell me that the whole context of this is, yes, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Joseph, Mary, these were godly believers. But they were not sinless ones. They were believers just like you and I. And they were godly just like you and I can be by grace through faith. Okay? Now, second one. We won't go as much into these other ones. Perpetual virginity. Mary remained a virgin until her death. So this is to keep her pristine and to keep her as someone you, you exalt. Okay? The only problem is... In Matthew 1.25, the Bible says, Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth. Until. What's the idea there? This poor guy who gladly by faith went through this finally got to have marital intimacy with his wife once Jesus was born. Until she was a virgin. She was a virgin until. And then in Matthew 13, 54, we learn this, 
the hometown people of Nazareth say this about Jesus. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? That was an unfortunate name choice. But uh, Judas and his sisters. So here's the deal. (coughs) We know that Mary and Joseph, after the birth of Jesus, had at least six kids, four sons and at least two sisters, and it could be even more. So they had at least a family of seven, including Jesus. Legend says that Joseph died by the time Jesus was about 18 years old. Third false doctrine is the bodily assumption. Mary died, but was immediately raised bodily into heaven. So everyone else that dies is separated until the resurrection. But in order to equal Mary with Jesus, who is in a risen, glorified body, they created the false doctrine of the bodily assumption that she, the moment she died, she was essentially resurrected in her full body so that she can be ruling and redeeming equal to Jesus. The only problem with this, there's nowhere in the Bible. I mean, I can't even give you a verse. It's just not there. Okay. Number four, co-mediatrix and co-redemptrix. Those are simply Latin ways of saying co-mediator. Are you familiar? You hear this? Yeah. And, and they use this. So I, and that's why I didn't translate it for you because that's how they refer to it. Uh, co-mediator and co-redeemer and ultimately the mediatrix, which is female mediator, of all of God's graces. So that if you want grace from the triune God, it all flows through Mary. Okay? Now, don't take my word for all this. So you can go to that next picture. Um, I have on your, on your table, uh, I wanted to hear it in their words, not mine. And so, I mean, I, I've done my, my job, uh, my training. I took a class in Roman Catholicism in seminary and read Vatican II. It was fun reading, Jerry. You know, you could use it for many, many things. Uh, read that, puppy. Um, but here's a book by James White. And you got the picture up there. There you can find it. This is a great book. There's many out there. There's tons to do. But what I've put in here, let me challenge you. Would you please read this? You know, don't 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 just shove it in your Bible and throw it in the trash. Take time to read this because it does it does a couple things. First of all, you hear it from the primary source. So basically, this is taken directly from. Uh, Catholic devotional material, and the vast majority that I've given you are all quotes from the Pope. So if you know what a Roman Catholic uh, church teaches, the Pope speaks for God. He does not err. So here's what they teach from their Pope. Secondly, let me tell you that most Roman Catholics probably don't know most that is in here. Third thing that happens when you read this, and it always gets me when I read this kind of stuff, is this is horrendous, deadly, dangerous doctrine. We live in an age when we want to say all religions are the same. We live in an age of ecumenical thinking where, you know, hey, Roman Catholics, they're born again too. And, and there, there are some born again Catholics who just need teaching and they need discipleship. But listen, this isn't stuff... It, we, you, you as a believer will read this and it should burden and even cause you to weep for the what it does to our Lord and Savior. For it exalts Mary, it magnifies Mary, and it diminishes Christ. Now, here is a picture. I'm not going to get very far today. Here's the picture. This was drawn, this was painted in the Roman, during the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation. So Luther, the reformers come, and they back to the Bible, and they're sweeping, I mean, those four doctrines, boom! I mean, they're out. And the, and the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church say, man, we got to get back after this. So they get people to paint things like this. And the reason I gave this to you, look at it, uh, it's just fascinating 
Who's the biggest person? This guy dies. This guy dies, and he's a, his spirit is ascending to heaven. So it's a picture of how this count is going to get into heaven. Well, notice all these people in heaven. You got the patriarchs, you got the apostles, you got John the Baptist till, still dressed like he's a wild man in the wilderness, and you got tiny little Jesus and big old Mother Mary. And notice. Even the people that are looking to Jesus, where is Jesus directing their attention? To Mary. And where is John the Baptist? Though he looks at Jesus, and he's supposed to be the one who makes much of Jesus, yet look where his hand is pointing, to Mary. And in this whole picture, who is the one that has the ability, the supernatural glow coming out of her fingertips in order to take this man's spirit up into heaven, it's coming out of the fingertips of, G of Mary. Here is a picture of the day of Pentecost. We know from Acts 1.12 that Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters had come to Christ for salvation. She was at the day of Pentecost, but as the fire comes down and the flames are on their head, whoa, it's Mary. <laughs> And so I even have some quotes in here. Here's Pope Benedict. There is no church without Pentecost. True. And there's no Pentecost without the Virgin Mary. And there's a picture that exemplifies that. And of course, Carmen and, and those of you that were, we've taken you to uh, Roman Catholic cathedrals, particularly on the mission field, but you can go right down here at Kansas City downtown. You'll see this kind of theology is in the art. Okay. So there you go. Um, so take a look at that. Um, now, here's the deal. Mary was a faithful disciple, but she wasn't sinless or worthy to be worshipped. So let me give you four things, uh, four proofs of that. Jesus reproves her for expecting a miracle. Again, if this is the queen of heaven, if this is the sinless co-mediator, co-redeemer, you would think she's right on Jesus's right hand and is always right, right? Always viewing him correctly. But in reality, she comes to Jesus at the wedding of Cana and says, basically, do a miracle. Uh, we ran out of wine and Jesus gently but firmly reproves her and says, I, I don't operate. Under your authority, I am operate under my heavenly Father. So far from Jesus saying, Queen of Heaven, what do I do here? She, she, he puts her in her place in a polite way, but he puts her in her place. Number two, Jesus rebukes her and his siblings for trying to control and limit his ministry. In Mark chapter 3... Uh, it says, when his own people heard this, well, here's what it says, uh, Mark 3.20, and he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent they could not even eat. So Jesus' ministry is exploding. He doesn't even have time to eat. Notice Mark tw uh, chapter 3, verse 21, when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Okay, so, you know, so, you know, there's times when you have to kind of uh, uh, bring your older parents who are suffering amnesia or dementia and, and, and you, you kind of got to take them into custody to take care of them. Well, they're trying to take into custody Jesus at 3031 because they're like, this, he's a crazy man. OK. And, you know, and, and so the crowd says, hey, Jesus. Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. In answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brother? brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So he's saying, Yes, that's my mother. Yes, she had this great blessing, but she's no better, no different than any other disciple. My spiritual family is greater than even my physical family, including Mary. Number three, Jesus refuses to raise her above any other disciple. There's another time when Jesus was teaching one of the women in the crowd 
raised her voice. And here's what, they, what this woman said to him. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. They're saying, you are so awesome. It had to come from an awesome mother. And so you, you couldn't get in. You know, I mean, this, she's not saying Mary's the queen of heaven or anything, or equal, but she's exalting the mother. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't say, Jesus, but he said, on the contrary, she's the queen of heaven. She's my co-mediator. She's my co-redeemer. No, no. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. In other words, what makes you great in the kingdom of God is not some singular grace at the moment you were conceived. What makes anyone great and blessed in the kingdom of God is they humble themselves like Mary did, submit themselves to the word of God, and place their faith in God. And by the way, we all are at different ages and stages here. If you're single... Or single again, or you're you're a woman who's not married, or you're married and you don't have kids. This verse is a word of comfort to you because it says it's not about being married, it's not about being a mother, it's not about having children. Although those are all great blessings noted in the Bible, but Jesus says, "Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it." Can I get an amen on that one? Number four. Jesus does recognize her as his mother to honor her, but not to exalt her. When Jesus was on the cross, there is his mother Mary. There is, and remember, she was like 13 probably. We don't know for sure, but probably 13 when he was born. He's he's 33 now, and so she's only 12, uh, 13 years older than him so here's this still relatively young woman standing by the disciple john and jesus in the midst of carrying the weight and the sins of the world honors her mother fulfilling the ten commandments and says woman here is your son and son this is now your mother he takes care he honors her as her mother but he does not exalt her to be equal to him. Now, where did all these false doctrines flow from? Here's where they flow from. The Latin Vulgate transition, which, uh, translation, which was the main Bible of the Roman Catholic Church up until the, uh, through, uh, well, not up until, but it was like the only Bible in the Middle Ages. And it translated Luke one twenty eight not as greetings favored one, but hail Mary, full of grace. Translated it as not Gabriel not coming to say, God has granted you grace to be the mother of Jesus. Rather, hey, you're full of grace from the moment you were conceived. And that full of grace is where all of this flows from. It really is. But ultimately... False doctrine comes from the pit of hell. And it's always been the devil's goal to diminish Christ and to reverse God's order. So here's the devil saying, no, we don't want him worshiping Jesus. He may save them and and grow them. No, we want them worshiping a false idol. And so out of this Luke chapter 1 passage, we get the Ava Maria which I'm sure growing up, Carmen, you have said it a lot lot and could probably say it now. And if you listen on your radio, you'll listen to Catholic radio, and they will go on and on in meaningless repetition that Jesus himself taught against. And saying, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of the womb, of thy womb, Jesus, holy Mary. But that's not in that passage. Mother of God. No, that's not even in there. It's, it's mother of my, of my Lord is what Elizabeth says. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. Amen. So there's the deception. 
There's the false doctrine. I've given you, this is the extreme. We'll pick up with this next week, and we'll look, though, at, and where we'll start next week, the other extreme is making too little of Mary. And that's why I got excited about this series, because she is worthy of study. And we, as Protestants, as Baptists, you know, it's like, really, we treat her like a figure in the nativity scene. We get her out at Christmas, preach a message related to Christmas, and then we put her back away with our Christmas tree and our Christmas lights. And so, for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at Mary and see how we can learn from her how to magnify the Lord. So, let's pray, and let's pray for uh, the Roman Catholic people in our lives. And, by the way, many of our missionaries deal with people that are deceived by these doctrines. Let's pray. Father, we come, and we come to you on the basis of your holiness, no one else's. We come on the basis of your grace that every human being has needed. And we come by faith because we have nothing to offer and we are undeserving of any answer to prayer. But we ask, Lord, that you would pierce in our hearts the reality of who you are and let us see the bondage and the false doctrine of magnifying anyone in our lives, our spouses, our children, our church, our pastors, anyone in our lives greater than you. And I pray those who have uh, family members who are in bondage to sin, that the gospel would penetrate their hearts. And I thank you for people in this class and in our church who have been delivered out of false doctrine into the light of your grace and your glory as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in the name of the most blessed and greatest Savior and Almighty God, we pray. Amen.